Welcome to the History Trust Summer Podcast Series. This podcast is based on the original recording from our Talking History program. You can read more about the podcast, its content and speaker in the show notes via your preferred podcast platform. Talking History was created on Ghana land, and the History Trust acknowledges the First Nations peoples of South Australia, whose connection to country and living cultures began in time immemorial and continues to the present. She wasn't wealthy. She didn't hold high office. She wasn't young. She was almost 60. She was a widow of limited means with few family and friends, a stranger in a strange land. Nonetheless, she embarked on a 30-year battle for social and political justice for women, children and the underprivileged here in South Australia. And despite intense public ridicule, she thrust herself into a series of high-profile campaigns. Her crowning glory, of course, was successfully spearheading women's suffrage. Mary was born Mary Walsh in County Monaghan, Ireland in 1821. Her upbringing strongly influenced her life as a social justice campaigner in the years ahead. She was born into a working class Protestant family Her father, John Walsh, was master of the local Orange Lodge, a politically active organisation with very strong religious affiliations. So she grew up in this home where there was discussions about politics and religion. She gained an education, which was quite unusual for young Irish and English girls at the time. She married a local man by the name of George Lee, who lived in nearby County Amar. And they were living quite happily until about 1845, when the great potato famine arrived and Ireland had experienced a series of other famines but this one in 1845 was catastrophic. Almost a million Irish people perished. George and Mary survived but they were regularly exposed to what was happening around them. It brought starvation, disease, poverty and a great deal of death to County Amar. Mary became disenchanted with the English political leaders who seemed to be immune to the needs of the Irish. And it was probably really the beginning of that discontent in her. Now, Ireland has a history of strong ancient matriarchs. Some of the women in the parishes became socially disobedient following the Great Potato Famine. They expressed their disobedience through peaceful means. They weren't militant. They wrote poetry, they wrote prose, they sent their stories to the press and their pen became their weapon. Mary would have been exposed to these women's stories and poetry and again later in her life she utilises the pen, it does become her weapon and she also steps out of that zone of comfort. In the early 1850s they moved to Barnwell in Cambridge, England And the parish of Barnwell has been described as a mix of quiet streets with dark, threatening laneways, reeking of wretchedness and crime. So they had moved from this very difficult time in Ireland to this very impoverished village in England. They started their own family. She, through her life, gave birth to eight children. And it was at this time in Victorian England where... A great deal of men and women didn't support women's rights. The most powerful woman in the world, Queen Victoria, wrote to her husband in 1870. And I'll just read a little excerpt of the letter. 
This mad, wicked folly of women's rights with all its attendant horrors on which her poor sex is bent, forgetting every sense of womanly feeling and propriety, God created men and women different. Then let them remain each in their own position. Women would become the most hateful, heartless and disgusting of human beings were she allowed to unsex herself. And where would be the protection which man who was intended to give the weaker sex? Mary's husband George died in the early 1860s. She does speak very lovingly of him in later life. So I'm assuming that they had a reasonably close, amicable relationship. Now, Mary, once she becomes a widow, she moves to Belsize Park near Hampstead Heath in the early 1870s. There were up to 20 students in the home. She had a staff of about half a dozen cooks and she had some student teachers also assisting her. She had moved up in the world and I think she chose to go to this more socially upward mobile area because it was an astute business decision. She knew that she was guaranteed the students' attendance. She needed it. She's a widow at this time and she needs to earn a living and support her family. Now, by the time Mary was 59, she had survived the Great Potato Famine. She had married. She had left her Irish homeland. She had moved to England. She had bore eight children. She had developed a demanding career, established her own business, suffered the death of a number of her children and the loss of her husband. It is a pretty amazing achievement by today's standards. And in mid-19th century England, it was remarkable. I think that she was probably quite comfortable living in Belsize Park in London. I think that she probably would have lived out her days there, except the previous year in 1878, her youngest boy, Benjamin, decided to sail uh, to Adelaide and he arrived here. He was working as a clerk in Rundle Street when he contracted tuberculosis. And tuberculosis during this period was rampant through Adelaide. So he contacts his mum and she and her eldest daughter, Evelyn, decide to sail. So they arrive here just before Christmas 1879. And she nurses Ben. They move into a home where they would live for the next 20 years. And unfortunately, no matter what she did, Ben passed away. So Mary finds herself with very little money. And I think it was really this lack of funds that determined her decision to remain here in Adelaide and not to return to England. What she found was this darker underbelly where young girls as young as 10 were working as servants and many of them had turned to prostitution as a means to basically buy food. And one journalist wrote, a number of pestiferous dens exist in Light Square and its neighbourhood, which may be considered the moral cesspool of the city of Adelaide. No merciful master would kennel his hounds there. Squalid filth and fetid vice render the atmosphere rank. Troops of young girls of all ages, from the all but infant to the full-grown woman, are cooped up or caged together as so many goods and chattels of the lawful owner, to hire out, to barter or to sell. The dens of infamy kept by these slaughtered souls are swarming with the poor polluted protégés of the emigration board. 
So what was happening, these young girls were arriving expecting to find work, there was no work available, so they were unfortunately reduced to trying to earn a living on the streets. The severe and violent disruption to Aboriginal societies caused by successive waves of white settlers meant that the plight of many Aboriginal women was even more appalling. Police Constable Thorpe reported in 1898, I feel sure that if half the young Aboriginal women now detained, and I won't call it kept, for I know most would clear out if they could, they would say that they were run down by station blackguards on horseback and taken to the stations for licentious purposes, and there kept more like slaves than anything else. I have heard it said that these same women have been locked up for weeks at a time. Mary knew that legislative change was necessary to improve the status of women living in Adelaide. She orchestrated campaigns to raise the age of consent and Reverend Kirby claimed that the South Australian Purity Act, which raised the age of consent to 16, and at that stage I think it was 10, was achieved principally through the work and effort of Mary Lee. And around about this period, Edward Sterling, a local parliamentarian, put the first women's suffrage bill before Parliament. He said, I believe it would one day be thought incredible that there was ever a time when the idea of giving votes to women was regarded as dangerous or revolutionary. A roar of hear, hear rose from the Green Wall Chamber of the House of Assembly. It gave false hope of a quick resolution. There would be no such thing. Bills to amend the Constitution Act and introduce women's suffrage were brought before Parliament on eight separate occasions over the next nine years. As it stood, women had no way to effectively alter their circumstances. Mary was 70 years old when she first stood up to address more than 100 people at a meeting in 1888 to establish the first Women's Suffrage League of South Australia. Lady Mary Colton was subsequently appointed President and Mary Lee Honorary Secretary. It was an act of social and civil disobedience and the beginning of a rough road ahead. For seven years, the public and many politicians abused Mary in Parliament, at meetings and in the press, and it only made her more determined. She says... It is my fixed conviction that every question that concerns the highest interest of our race concern the women of our race. Believing I have the highest sanction for this conviction, I mean to live for this reform. And that's precisely what she did. Mary Lee began the campaign as a foot soldier, but was quickly jettisoned to the front line. Mary became the face and the voice of women's suffrage. She immediately identified a discrepancy in the lack of rights for female taxpayers. I deprecate as constitutionally dishonest and denounce as arbitrary and oppressive the claim of any government to tax me for its support while denying me choice or veto to how or by whom I and mine shall be governed. This was also at a time that women were discouraged from speaking in public. It was regarded not only as unwarranted, but completely inappropriate behaviour. On one occasion, a local politician by the name of Henry Hussey had Mary in his sights, and he wrote, Poor Mary Lee, how she does fret 
foam, stew and scold. If Mary Lee is a typical example of what we may expect if females generally attain universal suffrage, I am afraid the world would not be much improved by the change. When women seek to perform the sterner and more masculine functions of public speaker, lecturer, debater and legislator, they forsake the refined sphere of feminine character and influence and forfeit their claim to the humour, respect and esteem of the sterner sex. Let Mary Lee follow the noble example of many of her sex who are too modest and too refined to wrangle publicly in the press. Of course, she ignored it. And following that, she wrote one of her strongest letters, and they called them Letters to Women. Are we a free people? If we are, then why are women asking for enfranchisement? It seems a strange anomaly that criminals, lunatics, women and children are classified as unfit to have charge of themselves and their interests, unworthy to be free. Let us hope that as the work proceeds of pulling down one after another the remains of the mouldering fabric of monopoly and tyranny, this one will not be the last to disappear. And before the lapse of another generation, the accident of sex, no more than the accident of skin, will be deemed a sufficient justification of depriving its possessor of the equal protection and just privileges of citizenship. Now, I should say that Mary could be quite contrary at times, and she got a lot of people off guard, as you can imagine. Throughout the campaign, one of her primary objectives was to form alliances between the suffrage movement and other organisations. Now, the Women's Christian Temperance Union were a very large group of very active women they wanted total prohibition. They had made this connection between alcohol abuse and domestic violence. Now, Mary knew that many politicians didn't support total prohibition. Having said that, they presented the South Australian suffrage petition to Parliament and of the 11,600 signatures, 8,000 signatures belonged to members of the Christian Temperance Union. So it was a valuable and necessary alliance. And she was very closely aligned to the church and her faith was extremely important to her. But on a number of occasions, she was attacked because she would hold lectures and talks on Sundays. And again, it was another attempt to shame her. The United Trades and Labor Council, which had formed in 1884, fought solely for the rights of working men. At that time, there was no union for working women. Mary made this connection between suffrage and the lack of working women's unions. Mary visited the factories and homes and found that working women were working sometimes 16-hour days for starvation wages in cramped conditions without washrooms and little light and natural air. And at a meeting in Adelaide Town Hall in late 1889, she proposed immediate steps to form a female trade union. And a few weeks later, as a result of that meeting, the first working women's trade union was established here in South Australia. And Mary now had Labor on her side. Meanwhile, parliamentary debate was still continuing and the bill was being proposed, discussed and adjourned as the years progressed and the momentum of suffrage began to wane and, of course, Mary was horrified. 
The Kingston Ministry was still refusing to support the franchise in early 1893. Then later that year, Kingston had a change of heart. New Zealand, as I mentioned earlier, had given women the right to vote in 1893, and he probably worked out that was probably in his best interest now to support women's suffrage. He extended the franchise to women in both the Legislative Council and the House of Assembly. And Mary thought that Kingston had finally come to his senses, but her elation quickly soured once she discovered that the government proposed the question of a referendum. It was another stalling tactic and eventually the referendum was abandoned. In July 1894, Kingston reintroduced the Adult Suffrage Bill to Parliament. Then on Monday the 17th of December 1894, Mary dressed in her customary widow's black. She perched her small black bonnet securely on her head and made her way to Parliament House. The 14th session of the South Australian Parliament opened early that day. The bill was introduced and debated throughout the afternoon. By midnight, they were no closer to a final vote and it was adjourned. The following morning, Mary rolled up and took a seat in the chamber. The third and final reading of the Women's Suffrage Bill was voted and carried with 32 loud eyes and 14 muffled nays. The Constitution Female Suffrage Act made the women of South Australia the only fully franchised women in the world at the time. The entire cost of the League's campaign amounted to £150 and it changed the course of political history. Now, unfortunately, the battle for equality was only part of the equation. A terrible racial injustice was later enshrined in the Commonwealth Franchise Act of 1902, which subsequently denied voting rights to any Aboriginal native of Australia, Asia, Africa or the islands of the Pacific except New Zealand, man or woman. Now Mary was 73 years old when suffrage was granted, but she would still not go quietly. She relinquished the reins of the Suffrage League, but she continued to speak publicly. And she went about to the suburbs of Adelaide, basically instructing women on the process about how to vote. And over 60,000 women registered to vote by February 1895. Unfortunately, her finances, of which she didn't have a great deal, dwindled in the last decade of her life. And a testimonial fund was established to basically give her enough money to live on. In 1909, she contracted influenza and passed away just short of her 90th birthday. It would take another 65 years before a woman was elected to South Australian Parliament, with Jessie Cooper and Joyce Steele elected in 1959. And Indigenous Australians didn't get the vote again until 1962. Celebrating 125 years of women's suffrage in South Australia is a time to remember and pay respect to women such as Mary Lee. It's also an opportunity to reinvigorate discussions surrounding the status of women, especially in light of the current under-representation of women in Australian politics, and continue the job that the women of suffrage began, and it really was the beginning. And as Mary Lee predicted in 1893, there is no finality in human progress. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
This is just one of the many stories of South Australia's history from the past, unfolding today and now preserved for the future. To read the show notes about this podcast, or to access the original recording, search Talking History in your favourite podcast platform, and don't forget to subscribe to hear the latest episodes. You can also visit history.sa.gov.au to learn more about the History Trust, our collections, public programs and museums, and how we are giving the past a future now. <laughs>